Media. How you doing, everybody? The Chet Comic Podcast Network. Welcome to Sports Course, a podcast where Chicago sports broadcasting pioneer and a national legal expert get into the legal goings of sports. And now your host, Chet Kopik and Lester Munson. Sports Court time. How you doing, everybody? I'm Chet Kopik in Chicago, joined by my good friend, the uh, nation's premier sports legal analyst, Lester Munson from ESPN. Lots of topicality on the table today. Lawrence Taylor, is he going to skate once again? Sean Payton, head coach, New Orleans Saints. Might he be hooked on uh, Vicodin? And we're going to talk to Lester about uh, the combustible relationship right now on 35th Street between Ozzie Gian and White Sox general manager Kenny Williams. Of course, I want to mention right off the top that we are brought to you by the marvelous people, led by John Coyne from American Taxi, Chicago's number one suburban taxi service, O'Hare, Midway, Mitchell Field in Milwaukee. There's only one way to go for comfort, for reliability, for the right price, and that's with American Taxi. All right, Lester, uh, in the case of Lawrence Taylor, last time you and I got together, we both had him uh, fitted for the custom-made uh, orange jumpsuit. Uh, I was offering you a, a hypothetical plea bargain in which, uh, if I were LT's attorney, I would give you um, uh, six months prison time. Uh, is there now a chance that Taylor, in fact, is going to skate? There is a chance. Uh, the, the defense lawyer has come up with a witness, a woman who claims that she was there and that she knows... Even though Taylor paid the $300 to the young girl, 16 years old, there was no sex. Therefore, the defense, Taylor and his group, are saying he didn't do anything wrong. So it's going to help him, but it may not get him completely out from under the hammer. But if I'm wearing the uh, the black robe and I'm sitting on the bench, and if there was indeed an exchange of money, if Lawrence Taylor did give the 16-year-old girl $300 for something that becomes above and beyond uh, an implied consensual agreement to have sex, isn't Lawrence Taylor in the eyes of the court still a John? He is still a John. That He is still violating the law. It's not as bad as statutory rape, sex with somebody who is too young, but he remains in trouble. He's on probation for other offenses, so given his history and given the fact that he did pay the money, even from his own witness he paid the money, he's still in trouble, absolutely. So I'm north of Manhattan right now, and I'm the uh, I'm the prosecutors, I'm the investigators on this case. And I, uh, I make contact with you, and you represent Lawrence Taylor, and I'm telling you right now, all right, I'm not going away. I'm out for blood. I'm going to make Taylor pay one way or the other. What would be a logical settlement on this? If the prosecutor comes to the defense lawyer like that, he's going to be asking for some period of time in jail, probably a month. If if I were Lawrence Taylor and I or I was his lawyer representing him and they came to me and they said, you're out of this by doing 30 days in the county jail, I would take it in a minute. It could get a lot worse. If his witness collapses, this woman, we don't know where she came from. I'm sure that right now the police up there are looking into her. They're trying to find out where, how she was even there. Um, I would say Taylor should would be very happy to take a 30-day sentence and try to settle everything at once. Uh, Lester, for the past 20 years, you have been covering uh, sports from a legal perspective like nobody else. If I told you that uh, Lawrence Taylor is, in fact, Mike Tyson, the only differentiation being Taylor apparently is not bipolar, 
Would you buy it? I might buy it, yeah. Taylor, I I think Taylor has had more difficulty with drugs than Tyson. It's gone on longer. Tyson Mm. has had his own problems with cocaine, but Taylor, if he could stay clean and sober, probably would be okay. He could behave himself. He could be a regular citizen. He could produce something. Mike Tyson... Even clean and sober, I'm not too sure he's all there. There, there's, there are some things that are going on with him that are just not right. You know, in the case of Mike Tyson, I've always given Mike something of a mulligan. He was raised in uh, Brownsville, the roughest section of uh, uh, Brooklyn, as you know. Uh, when he came under the wing of Customato, he didn't come under the wing of a father figure. He came under the wing of a vulture who saw him as a heavyweight champion. No more, no less. You throw in... Teddy Atlas, who I think the world of, Kevin Rooney, these these were not paternal figures who were offering Mike Tyson, you know, guidance about the game of life. There was only one ambition. How do we capitalize on this sap? Every single one of them looked at Mike Tyson as an ATM machine. They knew that they could produce all sorts of money by working with him and I don't think there was anybody in his life, even including a couple of wives, who really looked at him as somebody, what can I do to help him? The the guy who helped him, the guy who was the closest thing to a father figure, think about this, Don King. He (laughs) actually helped him in certain ways, and that's the guy we're looking at as the positive character in Mike Tyson's life. A guy who did time for manslaughter, who became a boxing promoter because of... A burned-out R&B star named Lloyd Price knew Muhammad Ali. That that was it. And, and here we have him. But if you look at the whole arc of Mike Tyson's life, most of the good things happened when he was with Don King. There's no doubt about it. King, actually, when he was charged in Indianapolis, when you and I began talking about these things, the one guy who was trying to help him was King. He hired the wrong lawyer, but he was not afraid to go out, get somebody, pay him a lot of money, mm-hmm. and, and anybody could have made that mistake. But King, our, the day of the conviction, the jury comes back guilty. We all thought Tyson would go to jail that night. King was there. He had his passport. He had the bond money. He had his Bible. He had everything there because he was worried about the guy going into jail that night. What were the lawyers doing? Nothing. They were doing nothing. Don King, every now and then, would stand up for him. My friend, uh, take me uh, way down yonder to uh, New Orleans. Uh, This is kind of rough terrain, but why do I have this feeling that as we speak right now, Sean Payton, the... uh, very successful head coach of the New Orleans Saints, at least looking from a distance. I see a guy who I think is hooked on Vicodin. There doesn't seem to be any doubt about it. Uh, this security director of the New Orleans Saints, a former FBI agent, 31 years in law enforcement, he has said publicly, and he's now going through an arbitration with the team, he has said that he found out 130 Vicodin pills were missing, Probably there were more than that. They can document that 130 were missing. An assist, the assistant head coach, Joe Vitt, was taking them from the team medical locker and giving them to Sean Payton. Everybody agrees to that. Payton is denying that he was addicted, denying that he was using them recreationally, but the evidence is overwhelming, and the team has gone to great lengths. Mickey Loomis, the GM, even Tom Benson, the owner, They've gone to great lengths to try to cover this up. 
It hasn't worked like most cover-ups, but they even now they're insisting on a private arbitration instead of a public court case because they're worried about their big hero, Sean Payton. Lester, if uh, Sean Payton had not had the good fortune to win a Super Bowl, would uh, Tom Benson, who can be a very damning, very difficult man to deal with, would Tom Benson have already fired Sean Payton? Uh, we both know that he is a very righteous-minded individual, and let's say they had a 500 season. I would say, yeah, Sean Payton is gone, and so is his assistant head coach, Joe Vitt, and probably Loomis, the general manager. But when you've just won the Super Bowl, how many owners can fire that coach for any reason? You know, uh, have you thought about this over the years with the uh, the volume of athletes you've covered and uh, the number of athletes you're aware of who are using drugs recreationally, uh, the volume of athletes you've covered who've had steroid problems. How many athletes do you think are using Vicodin? Vicodin would be a drug of choice if you're a professional athlete. For one, that Brett Favre, of course, made the drug famous uh, when he had to go Mongo McMichael told me he was, he was the guy who gave Brett Favre his first tablet of Vicodin. Ah, so Mongo did perform a service to the world. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and all, all this time we thought yeah. Mongo had no real, right. you know, no real commensurate value. When people get up in the morning and they say, what can I do today to help others? Steve McMichael has something he does to help others. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. The um, Vicodin at one time was in a bowl in the training room. You could take them and you could go and you could be on a buzz mm-hmm. for 72 hours. They don't, they don't do it that way anymore. Now they have to keep track of them. But Vicodin would be the kind of thing that a professional ball player could get his hands on very easily. If you give a doctor the right symptoms, they're going to write you the prescription, and off you go. All right, my friend. Uh, right now, 35th in the Dan Ryan. Is it time for uh, Lester Munson to step in and play uh, arbitrator and call for uh, uh, a Paris peace talk between Ozzie Guillen and Kenny Williams? There's no question that they are heading for a major collision here. I'm not even sure what the issue is. They, they, it's probably two egos that are a little bit out of control. Ozzy, I think, became kind of a different guy after he won the World Series in 2005. Some of the charm began to disappear. He's a little more into himself. Williams, we know, has always had this strong ego. He's mm-hmm. had great results. He's done some great things. He works and works and works. He takes no time off. Um, I can see that this is going to end very badly, and Jerry Reinsdorf is going to have to somehow try to save one of these guys, or he could lose them both. Knowing how Reinsdorf operates, if this was to uh, escalate badly in public between Kenny and Ozzy, over the next two weeks. Knowing Reinsdorf as you do, which one would he be more likely to fire? Boy, that's a good question. I think we got to remember that when Williams was looking for a manager, Ozzy was not number one on his list. It was only when Guillen came here and went through the interviews, including the interview with Reinsdorf, that mm-hmm. he charmed everybody into getting the job. Um, I, I would think that Guillen would have a good... If Reinsdorf had to pick one or the other... My guess, this is only a guess, would be he he might go with Ozzy Guillen. You know what's uh, what's interesting to me about this, Lester, is neither neither guy is going out of his way to say, you know, hey, this is nonsense. I like the other guy. I mean, the uh, the silence between Guillen and Williams right now, and the reports that they speak about nothing but baseball affairs, uh, really don't like to be around each other if they can uh, if they can possibly help it. I mean, eventually. 
hello, you got a rotten ball club. And a ball club which uh, could be staring at uh, uh, volumes of empty seats in July and August. One way or the other, Reinsdorf has got to get this squared away. Because the two combatants involved as individuals are incapable, in my opinion, of scoring it up amongst themselves. Yeah, I don't think there's any chance that they could make peace without somebody coming in between and getting them together and explaining to them that either they get get along or they're both going to be gone. That's what Reinsdorf would have to do. The uh, But with, uh, the, the important thing I think you mentioned, Chet, and that is that with the White Sox, they have to be winning to put people in cellular field. It's not like the Cubs who get 41,000 people in a six-game losing streak. The White Sox mm-hmm. have to win. They've got to have seats. The, the budget and the economy of the team are set up in such a way that they've got to sell tickets. And if these guys are hurting attendance, something's going to happen. You know, Lester, speaking of uh, losing streaks, I was talking about this with our buddy uh, Jeff Pincus. Uh, I love the fact that, you know, in the world of sports, that uh, you can say things which make absolutely no sense. <laughs> I mean, absolutely no it's sense. It's expected. You now, have to... <laughs> here, here is a quote from Ryan Dempster after the Cubs were knocked off by the vaunted Pittsburgh Pirates, that, that frightening bunch of roughnecks from western Pennsylvania on, uh, on Saturday in front of the usual crowd of, you know, 40,000 plus over at the confines. Ryan Dempster says, and some guy actually writes this down for the public to try and absorb and, you know, uh, disseminate and try to make sense out of. Ryan says, the easiest answer is to play hard. <laughs> Can you, can you possibly tell me yeah. what the devil that means? Yeah. Dempster is way too smart to be giving that answer, but he is smart enough that he knows that's all he can say. He can't really explain to us what's going wrong with the team. We're not, it's, it would be too much for us. We would be overwhelmed with grief if he actually told us what was See, going on. See, that's where Marcia Clark went wrong with O.J. Simpson. Down the stretch when she knew Johnny Cochran had her. When yeah. she knew that Cochran, you know, had gone to, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Right. When she knew in her heart of hearts that the jury was going to allow O.J. Simpson to walk, she should have just told the press, the easiest solution is we have to try this case harder. Play hard. That's <laughs> it. If she had played hard, O.J. Simpson would have been in jail 20 years ago. Lester, as smart as you are and as brilliant as you are at uh, sports legalities, do you sometimes look at sports and say to yourself, the Mickey Mouse Club has more intellectual value. <laughs> when you listen to some of those interviews and, and the, all the cliches and the bromides and the hackneyed phrases that come out, we're going to play them one at a time. When somebody starts to say that, some manager or some coach, I click. I mean, I, I, I would watch a, a black and white movie before I'm going to listen to that kind of thing. He is Lester Munson. There is nobody better. I'm Chad Kopic. We thank our tech man, Dan Levy, who's in a class by himself. And, of course, we thank the marvelous people. At American Taxi, remember you suburban people, there's only one way to go. They are often imitated, but they absolutely are never duplicated. American Taxi should always be your choice. You folks in the suburbs, whether you're going to O'Hare, Midway, Mitchellfield, wherever you're going, restaurant, whatever the case may be, night in the town, always use American Taxi. We'll catch you next time around. So long, everybody.